You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's uh, Co-Main Event Podcast 420. Woo! How many edibles did you have before this? Oh, I am blitzed on the Zoomers. Is that what the kids say? You know, you couldn't even maintain the illusion for a couple seconds. Whacked out on the goofballs. That's, I feel like that's pretty now, pretty now thing to say. I smoked some grass. See, this is, you, this is why your career as an undercover narcotics detective never took off. This right here. That I can't can't grow a, can't grow a great mustache. I'll, I'm, I'll be honest. If we're, if we're telling the truth, if we're having personal confessions this week, I can't grow a great mustache. I mean, I've, I saw you. Wait, hold on. Okay. A little technical problems here. This is great. Episode 420. Um, I saw you grow a great mustache once when you were Steve Prefontaine for Halloween. Yeah. I mean, I can do okay. I don't know if it's cop worthy. I don't know if it's quite undercover cop worthy. That's all I'm saying. I'm just trying to be honest with the people. Okay. Uh, see, I knew I was thinking like, okay, maybe I see if I could sneak over to your house in the the dead of night, put some, some edible gummies in with your, your Flintstones vitamins or whatever. (laughs) Maybe just go straight LSD in the toothpaste. Uh, you know, whatever, something, Uh, I gotta say though, maybe what we do is for the week of episode 420. How about this? I'll drop you off some gummies for the live chat on Wednesday. What do you say? Okay. All right. I mean, Are we're going to record that at like seven in the morning, right? Well, shit. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things go. Okay. One thing we do know, it's UFC 253 fight week, Ben. It's a big week. Kind of snuck up on week. me. Did it sneak up on you? They always do these days. It's yeah. just like it's too much other stuff going on. You can't, you can't get properly hyped. Your, your, your hype level cannot reach its proper levels because, uh, we're still out here slogging through the mire of Colby Covington versus Tyron Woodley and everything else that happened on Saturday night. Next thing you know, you turn around, Israel Adesanya and uh, Paulo Costa are having a collegial but tense interaction in a hotel hallway somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, just it sneaks up on you. Yeah, but see, that one, that one for me at least came about right when I needed it. Because I'll tell yeah. you what. No, it's a breath of fresh air. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I, I woke up. Sunday morning after the Covington Woodley fight, and especially after hearing all of Colby Covington's comments after the fight, and I woke up feeling depressed about the state of the sport and just where we are, just generally in the world, in the country, that kind of stuff. Because you see Colby Covington in like several different formats and in different ways, going from like really highly amplified dog whistle racism to sometimes just straight up in your face racism. And, but then as someone who has covered this sport a long time and been in the, like the social media sphere of the sport, like, you know how it's going to go after that, right? Like 
Some of us are going to not be able to not say something about this kind of bullshit. But then, you know, you're going to hear a bunch of pushback on it from the people who just love that bullshit or like either openly love it or kind of secretly love it enough that they don't want to see anybody say anything negative about it. And, you know, again, like a bunch of as soon as you pointed out, like on Twitter, like, okay, well, Colby Covington is doing like all this stuff about how the the Black Lives Matter movement is a sham and that these aren't real Americans. They don't love America. These aren't blue collar Americans. And everybody's going, man, we've heard this before. We, we know what this is. And then you say so. And there's a whole bunch of people being like, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's not racist. Point out to me the part that it's racist. And I just feel so tired of it. And I can't imagine now every once in a while where we hear from somebody who says like, hey, man, I feel like it's getting really hard to be like a black fan of MMA. And I'm like, I can't imagine how sick of it you must be. I can't imagine how MMA has any black fans left like with shit like this. Like, can you imagine if this was like uh, an NFL post game presser with like an NFL player all saying all this kind of stuff like you, you would be hearing about it. And in MMA, we just operate in these like dark little corners. And we've talked about it before. This is one of those times where you're just like, I'm kind of glad that more people aren't paying attention to what we do in this sport because I, I'm ashamed of it. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. You said it all when you said it right there, man. Uh, we'll be talking about that more, I assume, as we move forward here. We got music this week from our guys, Foreign Cash. Again, that's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Uh, pleased to have their music on the show again this week. Three rounds as usual in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, it wasn't a great fight. In fact, at times... We weren't sure what Tyron Woodley was doing out there, but at least Colby Covington reminded everybody that being a racist asshole is still a viable path to fun and profit in this sport. And in round number two, from a fight between bitter enemies to a fight between two guys who really, really seem to want to be best buds, Donald Cerrone and Nico Price fought to the world's friendliest draw. And in round number three, Israel Adesanya fights Paulo Costa over the middleweight title this weekend, maybe in a bout that doesn't have to carry the entire weight of the culture war. Wouldn't that be refreshing? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Taylor Loyal, who writes, okay, So maybe Mackenzie Dern isn't the best kickboxer at strawweight, but it's becoming increasingly clear that she's the best grappler. Is that enough to take her to the top of the division? So, uh, Ben, we saw Mackenzie Dern out there this weekend against Randa Marcos. Uh, You know, this, this fight hit the ground quickly, although not in what you might consider to be a traditional way. Mackenzie Dern goes out there, tries to throw a high kick, loses her balance, falls falls straight down. And for some reason that I can't explain, maybe you can explain it, uh, Randa Marcos goes ahead and falls her down there, decides to play the jujitsu game with Mackenzie Dern. And that, uh, that does not go great, let's be honest. Ends up conceding the tap out via armbar there in the first round and and another win here for Mackenzie Dern. You, Ben, the relative or the resident, I should say, uh, co-main event podcast jujitsu apologist. How do you rate wow. Mackenzie Dern? 
I mean, she's obviously a really good grappler. We knew that when she was coming into MMA. We've seen it in MMA. We've also seen just in the long spectrum of history of jujitsu specific fighters in MMA, the big problem that they often face is if you don't also have good enough striking to present a problem there or good enough wrestling to get the fight where you want it to where you can put your jujitsu to work. Jiu-jitsu is a skill set where it's hard to have that one thing and make it work in today's MMA where everybody knows at least a certain amount of jujitsu. The loophole in that is that if you fall down and they will just follow you there, then, then it's fine. Then it works really, really well, it turns out. It's like, how many times have did we used to see, not so much anymore, but we used to see those situations where you'd have a really good jiu-jitsu fighter who didn't have great striking, didn't have good wrestling, and you know, try to get uh, his opponent, his or her opponent down. And if they wouldn't go, you know, they wouldn't, if you couldn't get them down and you start to get tired after a bunch of failed takedown attempts late in the fight, how many times have we seen somebody lay on their back and basically do this, do this thing where they, they wave at them and be like, come please get in my guard so I can do the one thing that gives me the best chance of, at beating you. And in pretty much every situation, the person stands there and they're like, no, no, I will not do that. Uh, Cause what I'm doing is obviously frustrating you and I'm going to stick with that. Random Marcos goes the other way. I don't know if yeah, it was just the like, opposite. do you think that it's just like instinct kind of like that? She sees her opponent fall down and maybe in that one moment, she's not, her brain isn't registering. And my opponent is Mackenzie Dern. She's just thinking she fell down. That means that she's in a moment of weakness there. I should attack. And then once you get ensnared in the ground battle with Mackenzie Dern, it's kind of too late. Like you're, you're sinking in the quicksand at that point. Yeah. You're not getting out of there. That's she made that clear this this past weekend. She's uh, she's basically climbing up the torso of Randa Marcos to keep her down. Uh, and it was impressive. I got to be honest, impressive display on the ground there from Mackenzie Dern kind of going from a triangle attempt to uh, Oma Plata, I believe, and then into the uh, the arm bar where she ended up finishing finishing her. Um the well, what about the actual question though here like do you, is Mackenzie Dern well rounded enough to make a significant run in this division I, now obviously straw weight hasn't been around the UFC for as long as some of the other weight classes like you get the impression that in some ways maybe the uh the talent pool is still developing there so you might hazard a guess that somebody with a, a one-sided skill set but where that single skill is as well-developed as Mackenzie Dern's jiu-jitsu, like she might be able to be more successful there than maybe someone could at a, in a different weight class. But at the same time, like given what we've seen from the, from the upper echelon of 115 pounds, uh, is there a, uh, is there a, a world where Mackenzie Dern can, could beat, you know, the Rose Nama Yunus, the, the Wiley Zhang, even the Yolanda Yajaychiks of the world, or, or is if she goes with the, the skill set she's got now, do you see her just kind of like perennially hanging around the bottom half of the top 10 or the top 15? Uh, I mean, I guess we got to see more of her against some of those higher quality opponents before we really know for sure. But it's hard for me to imagine th- that you go in there against like the top two or three in the division and that like you're not going to get them to just follow you to the ground. It's not going to be that easy. You got to have something else. Like I I believe you can still, at least in certain weight classes, you can still be a specialist in this sport and, and go fairly far. 
some other weight classes. Like, like you're not going to show up at like men's lightweight in the UFC and be a you know one discipline specialist and go very far because there's just the talent is is too good there and everybody is so well rounded. But in order to beat those really really top fighters in the division, you've got to have at least one other thing. And the question for Mackenzie Dern is, what is the other thing going to be? I don't know if it's going to be great striking, especially if you look at how she would match up striking-wise against somebody like Rose Namajunas or something. But, like, could it be wrestling? Could you could you have a well-developed enough wrestling game that it gives you the opportunity to use that skill set? Maybe. But I don't know if we've seen it yet. Let's talk about the elephant in the room here. What's going on with Mackenzie Dern's command of the English language? Uh, we're gonna, we're, we we're doing make, this again. Well, we don't want to make fun of the way someone talks, but like this is a topic out there on social media. Every time Mackenzie Dern has a fight, every time she's victorious, every time we see the uh, the post fight interview with her, obviously she is a native of Arizona. She's an American person. Both of her parents, I believe, though, are Brazilian. Uh, her dad is a decorated Brazilian jiu jitsu player himself. She kind of jumped back and forth between America and Brazil growing up. She says, you know, she has a Brazilian uh, boyfriend or husband. I don't know if they are married at this point. Uh, She says she speaks Portuguese at home. She says she dreams in Portuguese. So when you, she says that Portuguese has become sort of like her, her, her primary tongue, I guess you would say primary language. And then when you see her uh, on these interviews, she sounds like a person who's from Brazil. She sounds like a Brazilian person speaking English. And, you know, a lot of people, either make light of that or take issue with it, that, that she's actually like an American person grew up largely in the States. And yet she sounds like, you know, she sounds like a, a Portuguese speaker out there. You know, when I was a boy, Chad, settle in for a story that begins that way. When I was, when I was a lad, a young child, I had a friend, uh, and his name was also Ben was, uh, we were good friends, played a bunch of baseball teams together and everything. One day I went over to Ben's house and his mom spoke to him in a British accent, which I'd never met his parents or like I'd seen his parents at like baseball games. and never really talked to them or anything or heard them. Talk. And so it was surprising to me. His mom spoke in a British accent. And then even more surprising, he spoke back to her in a British accent. I was just like, I was sitting there going, wait a minute. Have I missed something? What's, has this been going on all along? unbeknownst to me, like his parents were both British. He was born in England, had grown up in England for a long time, but then had moved to America young enough uh, and got super enmeshed in all the American culture, especially baseball. He was a baseball nut, as was I at the time. Um, but when he was around them, they'd speak to him like that, and then they would just come right out. And I, he didn't even seem to realize he was doing it, because afterwards I remember asking, like, so like, so what's, a, what's a, did I just have a stroke or like, did, like what was happening? And, you know, and he did not even seem to realize that he was just naturally slipping back into it. So I could see if you grow up around like a bunch of Brazilians or Brazilian culture, you spend a lot of time on the mats in Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms, uh, all that stuff. Like I could see how you probably don't even realize you're doing it at a certain point. I, I mean, it, it definitely doesn't seem like if she was doing it on purpose, like to what end, I guess would be the, because people on the internet are going to make fun of her for it. But when they point out, like, as you said, that, that, you know, she's from Arizona. So like, what would be the upside of her just like purposely going out of her way to do it? I wonder. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. She, but she probably doesn't even realize she's doing it. That's, that's my theory. Where's Ben today? King of England? 
You know what? Uh, his family, I believe, moved back to England at some point. Or they moved somewhere out of California, but they, I think they moved back to England, which I always wondered for him. I was like, man, he was super into baseball. He was the most into baseball kid I knew, and I was pretty into baseball. And if he had to just go back to England where nobody is going to want to hear shit about baseball, I, I assume he died of a broken heart, Chad. <laughs> well, maybe it was a good thing that he was working on that British accent so he could fit in at least when he didn't gets over there. Didn't even realize he was doing it. I, you should have seen my face when they, I was like looking back and forth between the two of them as like a 12-year-old boy being like, what, have I slipped into the shadow realm? Next question this week comes from Eamon Dunphy, our old pal. He writes, uh, Michael Chandler is another ex-champ from Bellator getting his shot in the UFC. Looking at previous title holders who came across, Lombard, Brooks, Good, Askren, Volkov, etc., only Eddie Alvarez managed to win a title in the UFC. So my question is, which resource has proven most valuable for signing fighters for the UFC? Uh, tough, Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of... Uh, Dana White looking for a fight. That's what this yeah, one okay, acronym, I that, believe, means. Yeah, there's a lot of acronyms here right in a row. D-W-L-F-A-F threw me for a loop there yeah, for you don't, a second. You don't see that one very often. Or Bellator, Bellator free agency signings. Now, this is a question that took a left turn on us. I wasn't sure that this is exactly where we're going, but uh, obviously the big news of the day that we talked about a little bit last week, Eddie Alvarez, I'm sorry, Michael Chandler into the UFC here, former Bellator lightweight champion, going to be the the injury replacement fighter uh, just in case someone falls out of the Habib Nurmagomedov-Justin Gaethje fight at UFC 254. Uh, what do you make of this question, though, Ben? Is, which which has been the, the most valuable product in terms of like converting uh, – you know, good fighters into the UFC. Would you take the ultimate fighter? Would you take uh, Dana White contender series? Would you take looking for a fight or would you take the people that come over via free agency from Bellator? I mean, I guess it depends what we mean by what's the best. Like, like are we, to, are we asking what leads to the most best fighters or like the, the fighters who reach the highest point once they get to the UFC or what's the best for the UFC in terms of how much it costs versus how much right. those people help generate. I mean, tough and the contender series at this point, uh, probably pretty good investments I would think yeah, for the UFC the because that you get, you get promotable fighters, especially during this pandemic era. Every time you turn around, you got somebody from the contender series taking some manner of short notice bout, Right. In the UFC. So like, you know, you're getting promotable potential stars, especially in the case of, of the ultimate fighter that for at least the early portions of their UFC career, you're not paying that much. Whereas Michael Chandler, Eddie Alvarez, somebody like that, probably even a guy like Ben Askren coming over. You got to think they're, they're getting, you know, uh, they're not exactly getting 20 and 20 out here. Right. To, well, and I think too, like, I guess my answer to this would be tough, but then in fairness, Tough was around for a really, really long time, whereas the right. Contender Series is still relatively new. But, I mean, you saw several eventual champions that came out of Tough. Like, you know, especially yeah, – also in, did 30 seasons. Right. And seasons. you saw, a like, as the series went on, the the highs produced by the best fighters to come out of each season of Tough were not as high anymore. Like the first few seasons, which it makes sense because you had a lot, like the UFC roster was just smaller. The the odds that somebody is who is just looking for their big break on Tough but and would have got to the UFC pretty soon, eventually routed through Tough, that, that happened a lot more frequently back then. Like somebody like Forrest Griffin, Rashad Evans, guys like that. Um, but 
I, I do think that one of the things that skews it is when you look at who, how the pattern usually plays out when the UFC ends up signing somebody as a Bellator free agent. Usually they have to have been in Bellator for a little while and really made a name for themselves there. It's not usually like they went through one contract in Bellator, won three or four fights, looked really good, and the UFC was like, okay, I'll go over there and get them. Usually it's <clears throat> they were a champion and sometimes for a long time. And so then when the UFC does finally go and think that it's worth you know, the effort, the, the money, the time to go scoop them up in free agency, usually they're probably closer to the end of their career than somebody who comes out of tough. Yeah. Either that or it's Felipe Lins, where the UFC is just kind of rolling the dice that no one will even remember that he was in Bellator, right? Uh, I, I'm going to say probably the ultimate fighter uh, is 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 your best pound-for-pound pound product in terms of converting fighters for the UFC, but like I think the highs are higher if you, if you go via free agency. Like if Eddie Alvarez, Michael Chandler, and Ben Askren had all come into the UFC via the ultimate fighter, we would probably be talking about those guys you know, on the short list of of best tough winners of all time, right? Like those, those guys, well, we don't know Michael Chandler yet, but like, uh, Eddie Alvarez obviously was the champion. Ben Askren that had a, a short run, but, but it burned twice as bright man for Ben Askren there for a little while. So like, I think that the, the peaks are higher here for, for Bellator in terms of like, or free agency, I guess you could say in terms of, of producing stars for the UFC. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from noted British chemist, Rosalind Franklin, okay, who writes Clark versus Alpar, pretty gross. Ref fail, corner fail, or was there a blood sacrifice ordinance in effect that I didn't know about? Now, of course, uh, Ben, we're talking about the uh, women's bantamweight fight between Jessica Rose Clark and Sarah Alpar on the preliminary card of this past weekend's UFC on ESPN plus thirty six. Uh, Jessica Rose, Jessica Rose Clark gets the late TKO in the third round here. Uh, not without some controversy though, earlier in that round, uh, she need Sarah Alpar right in her face. And, you know, to the naked eye, it appeared that it was very close to uh, an illegal blow. Uh, referee Chris Tyone steps in to stop the action. We go to the, uh, the, uh, uh, instant replay. There is some, some confusion about what the, the rule at the, in this state of Nevada says about instant replay. He ends, he eventually restarts the fight. Things just get worse and worse for Sarah Alpar in this thing. She's a bloody mess. And eventually uh, the ref steps in again to, to call things off just 30 or 40 seconds before you would have got the final bell. Jessica Rose Clark gets the victory. I know that uh, this was the a hot topic of conversation on Twitter and elsewhere on Saturday night. What was your overall take here about, about this fight? I mean, if you're Chris Tyone and you find yourself in this one, are you going, oh, shit, not again? Not again. Here we go again. Because it was just last week where he was involved in the Ed Herman situation. And now you have a, a, a very similar thing where he seemed to step in there to call a foul on an illegal blow. And it was, granted, when it's happening in real time, that's a tough one. It's a tough one to call because yeah. uh, Sarah Alpar was up against the cage. She's sinking down. It looks like she's sinking to a sitting position. But the, la- the knee lands just before her butt touches the mat, basically. So she's still like a standing fighter technically at that point, not yet a down fighter when the knee lands, but he moved right in right away. And it's like, if you let that one go where she lands this legal knee and Sarah Alpar is clearly really shook up by it, it is probably no more than two punches away from being finished right there. And so you step in 
you deny Jessica Rose Clark the chance to finish where she's she's landed a legal blow and she should be about to finish. Very similar to that uh, Mike Rodriguez, Ed Herman thing where he lands the body shot, Ed goes down from it. He looks like he's about to finish. And Nevada's claim afterwards was that the commission put out a statement I saw on Aaron Bronsetter's Twitter where they said the bout wasn't stopped. It was merely paused and he did not consult the replay, but another official at Cade's side told him it was a legal blow. And so then you've stopped the fight for a legal blow. You've you've harmed the other fighter's chances to continue on and finish the fight. And that's the tricky thing about like using instant replay in these situations in MMA because there's really no way to fully make up for that. He, he restarts them basically in the same position. But once you give that other fighter a chance to rest and recover and gather their wits and, and – just kind of think about what's going on. You've helped them get back in the fight a little bit. And as we saw in that Mike Rodriguez, Ed Herman situation, you might help them get all the way back in until they win it. And so what, like that's the situation we've, or that's the problem we've talked about before about why refing an MMA fight is so difficult because whether you step in or you don't, you risk altering the course of the fight. Like if you allow it to go on after an illegal blow and she lands too great, punches that really seriously hurt Sarah Alpar. And we go back and we look at the replay and we decide the thing that set it up was an illegal blow. Like we've seen before. Uh, well then you not stepping in affects the course of the fight. If you step in, you've also altered the course of the fight. Right. Isn't, I don't this, know. isn't this a situation where a referee can't really win? Like you, you can't win if you're the ref here, because like if you let the fight play out, and Sarah or Jessica Rose Clark finishes her right there. And then you go to the replay and it turns out that wasn't an illegal blow. Do you either got to disqualify her or it's a no contest, in which case everybody's mad at you anyway. Like nobody is going to uh, send Chris Toyoni a, a medal because he did that. Like no one's going to give him an award in no, this no case. No fruit baskets coming your way. Nope. Yeah. Especially not from the, from the UFC. Uh, I feel like Chris Toyoni did exactly the thing that we are constantly asking referees to do in this fight. Like he thought there was an illegal blow. He stepped in, uh, to, to pause the action. Then there was an additional ref outside the cage watching the replay, which is the exact thing I was arguing for last week when we were talking about Ed Herman, Mike Rodriguez, the, the, the other ref is able to say, Oh, Oh, Hey, like this was not an illegal blow. And so he restarted the fight. Jessica Rose Clark. Well, first he checked with Sarah Alpar to make sure she could continue. She said she could. So they, they went forward with it. It got bloody. It got nasty. She got mashed up like weeks before her, her wedding, right? I mean, she'd so already like, been mashed up as soon as that knee landed. That knee broke her whole shit. It got a lot worse as it went right. on. Uh, and Jessica Rose Clark obviously ultimately finishes the fight. Like, I watched that and I'm like, yes, that played out the way, the optimum way that it should play out in this sport when you think there's a foul. And yet, I looked on the on the on the tubes on the internet and it's like Dana White is is ripping him for two bad calls in in two weeks people on the internet are ripping him the broadcast team is ripping him I was like I I thought he did exactly what we are constantly asking people to do uh the confusion that I saw is do, does the Nevada commission's rules allow for him to restart the fight in that situation right. So there was that, but apparently the NS NAC said it does. So right, but it also I get the sense that the NAC would would just they want to yeah they might just say some stuff 
because they don't want to admit like our referee deviated from what the rules say you should do there. And it's also but the rules worth, should like that is the way the rules should work, right? It's worth admitting that we have the benefit of hindsight because when he asks her, okay, are, are, you know, can you continue to fight? Do you want to keep fighting? She says yes. And then when the fight restarts, it's clear that she has been severely diminished by that knee and not really in it that much after that, but also not going to let herself just roll over and be submitted. And so it's going to make Jessica Rose Clark just beat the hell out of her. And that I think casts a, a different shadow over the whole thing because we're looking at it going, see, that proves that you should have stopped the fight there, that you never should have restarted it. And then when we look at the rules and say, do the rules even allow you to restart it after that? Then I, I think that that creates a different impression. But you're right that as soon as you you get into that situation where you're stopping the fight and it feels like it's kind of unfair either way because yeah. you can say to her, well, we think that you probably would have been finished here moments later anyway. And she's going, but I wasn't. Like, I didn't right. get that exactly. chance. and But then you're also saying to Jessica Rose Clark, yeah, you really had her hurting on the run and looking like you're about to put her away at any moment. But we had to stop and look at the replay. And during that time, she got to recover and uh, clear her head a little bit, which is valuable, valuable time for a fighter who's just been shook up. Yeah, I feel like in MMA, you've got two options. You either, like, if when you think that there's a foul or when there is a foul, you either let the fight play out and then you figure it out after the fact or you intervene and you try to make things right in the moment. And neither of them is going to be mess-free. Both of them yeah. are going to have, there's going to be fallout from either way you go. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, when the UFC is so blatantly teeing a fighter up to win, there is a lot that can go wrong. In the case of Kamzat Chimaev, he defied the MMA gods when he KO'd Gerald Mearshart in 17 seconds. Let's not kid ourselves. The matchup was designed for this, but damn, that was impressive. What are your thoughts on the 17-second destruction, and will he be able to steal some shine from Ben's beloved Damian Maya? Uh, this was impressive. Yeah. Kamzat Chimaev, essentially, I believe he, th he threw two punches, but only one of them landed. Uh, KO's Gerald Mearshart with what I believe was a straight right 17 seconds into the first round here. We had talked a little bit last week about how maybe the UFC was uh, tempting fate here, tempting the MMA gods by essentially booking Kamzat Chimaev two two fights in a row, one, one against Mearshart and then one coming up against Damian Maya. He, uh, he skated through like he made it through. He, he did about exactly what you would want to do, I guess, if you got two fights booked right in a row. He, he, yeah. he wins quick and easy and uh, he's on to the next. I guess I'm interested to know, number one, how scared you are that Kamzat Chimaev is going to fight your guy, Damian Maya. Uh, and number two, like what are our impressions here of, of Chimaev moving forward and, and how much this performance against Mearshart shaped our expectations for him and what we think he can be? Well, on the question of Maya, I'm going to have to take a page out of your book. I'm going to do this with my hands so that people understand the, the seriousness of what I'm about to say. The gravity of the situation. Chad, I am concerned. <laughs> I think you'd better be. I have some, some deep, deep concerns for my guy, Demi and Maya, in this one. They, those concerns went way up after watching this fight. Honestly, because that was impressive. I was before this fight, you know, Sean Alshadi and I were doing a panel discussion kind of thing about what what we make of what the UFC is trying to do here and ways it could go good or bad for Kamzat Chimaev. And I, I made the point 
that there were several ways for it to go bad and really only one way for it to be good. And that was for him to go in there, get a quick win, come out unscathed and be not at all compromised going into the fight with Demi and Maya. Even when I was imagining that scenario, it didn't look as quick and unscathed as it actually ended up being. There was no way I was thinking, okay, he's going to go in there and throw one punch and win the damn fight. And especially because from what we've seen a lot from Chimaev so far, you think, well, he's going to have to get in there and mix it up at least a little bit. Like he's going to have to wrestle the guy some. He can be an overwhelming with his attack in that way. But we hadn't really seen too much of that. Just one punch lights out power. And man, if you've got a guy who can do that, but can also just grind out a you know a wrestling heavy, grappling heavy, like Khabib style, push you up against the fence, take you down and put you in that wrestling spin cycle that you can't get out of. That's a tough guy to deal with. I don't, if you're trying to find a weakness in that guy's armor, it's kind of tough to find once you see all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the Damian Maya fight, I think, will continue to be instructive <laughs> just to see uh, how how good this guy can be and how quickly he, you know, fast forwards into a contender position. And obviously, you got to take anything Dana White says with a grain of salt on a lot of topics. But when he talks about the relative skills of a fighter, he speaks from a large experience base. Like nobody, almost nobody has seen more fighters than, you know, the UFC power structure. Like nobody... Nobody watches as many fights probably as the matchmakers. Nobody seems has seen as many fighters come and go as a guy like Dana White. And for him to, you know, say the superlative things that he said about Chimaev in the last couple of weeks about how special he is and how he's one of the most impressive talents Dana White has ever seen, you know, come down the road in this sport. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive uh, uh, praise from a guy in that position. So I'm interested to see what Chimaev does moving forward here, although I, I – you know, I'm going to send you a, a a wreath you can put on the door at the house. Maybe a maybe a shroud. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like when you're in mourning after this thing is over. But uh, we got a we got ourselves a, a hot prospect on our hands here. Well, the Demi Maya fight, in some ways, though, does present an interesting style question to see how he answers. Right, especially yeah. because if part of your thing is going to be like I charge right across the cage and I take you down and just start beating you up on the mat. Demian Maya is the kind of guy who would go, please take me down. Like by all means, like make my job a little bit easier. Come over here, double leg me, and then let's get into that whole thing. So I'll be interested to see what both guys can do with that, with that matchup. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, a comment, concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Uh, As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Colby Covington gets the late stoppage over Tyron Woodley in the main event of UFC on ESPN plus 36, the grudge match, the welterweight grudge match, uh, pitting these two guys against each other. Tyron Woodley ultimately suffers a rib injury in the final round. The stoppage at a minute and 19 seconds here, a little bit anticlimactic, I think. 
uh, by the time you get that deep in the fight. But we had also perhaps seen enough over the course of, of uh, 21 minutes that it didn't seem like Tyron Woodley was going to suddenly come roaring back and steal this thing away from Colby Covington. And Ben, maybe that's the problem here for a 38-year-old Tyron Woodley who now uh, finds himself on the heels of three straight losses, albeit to high-level competition, Kamara Usman, the current champion, Gilbert Burns, uh, the upcoming number one contender, and and Colby Covington, the previous number one contender and previous uh, interim welterweight champion. But I feel like we got to talk a little bit about T. Wood here because it has been the Achilles heel of Tyron Woodley for much of his career, I would say, and especially in in big moments like this, to kind of go out there and not really be able to get himself out of first or second gear, to not really ever be the explosive finisher that we know that he can be or that we know that he could be at one time during his career. And I feel like as the guy gets older, you know, you don't have to lose a lot of speed, athleticism, or power before that particular uh, negative personality trait or negative athletic trait starts to become more and more noticeable. So as I'm watching Tyron Woodley fight Colby Covington in about where you would think he would have every motivating factor in the world to go out there and do something, something impressive, he just kind of looks a little listless. It's like he can't really get started. And when the other guy starts working his offense, Woodley seems to sort of retreat into this shell. And I feel like at 38 years old, it's just that's the kind of thing that becomes more and more apparent. Uh, when you when you see it kind of over and over again, what's what can what could be left at this point? I guess for Tyron Woodley, in your opinion, yeah. The stat that I was really kind of amazed by when I saw Sean Alshadi put it in his post fight column. Then in the last three fights, you know where Tyron Woodley fights almost fifteen full rounds in those three fights, and in those fights, you know the first uh, Usman Gilbert Burns and now Colby Covington, he was outstruck. 724 to 192, which that's significant. And yet, even when you hear that statistic, which seems really lopsided, kind of the first thing I think when I hear it is, when did he land 192? Because it doesn't seem like he was doing much in any of those fights. And especially in this one, because obviously it's the thing everybody was talking about with them coming into this fight that, hey, you've looked kind of listless and just a complete lack of urgency in your last two fights. Looked like you just didn't want to be there. Looked like you never really put it into the next gear to really pull out all the stops and try to win. But here's the one against your hated rival. You got to let your hands go. You got to do all that kind of stuff that people are telling him. And he's going, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm definitely going to do it this time. Don't worry. I'm going to show it to you. And then he goes out there and it's just the same thing. It's the same exact thing that he's done in the last two fights. You could even hear his coaches where they're telling him, like they have the urgency. They see what's happening. Another fight is slipping away from you and they're kind of begging him to go out there and do something, and he's just not doing it. And that, to me, is a really tough problem to solve because it's not just that you got old and your body's not as quick as it was or as resilient as it was or you can't do the same things. I think you can make adjustments to that. And we've seen a lot of fighters who uh, – Alistair Overeem is a great example of something we, we talked about recently where as he got older and he's not able to be physically the same fighter he was, he turned into a smarter fighter. And he worked with what he could do and he maximized that. And Tyron Woodley instead has a problem of he's just not flipping that switch and not ever looking like he really wants to be there and wants to get after the guy and put a beating on him. Like, like at no point in any of those last three fights has he just looked like that's what he even wants to do. And if that's your problem, how do you fix that? 
because obviously he's thought about it by now. He, he's had some chances to talk about it with his coaches, I'm sure, and had some chances to address it. But the same thing keeps happening. So how do you fix that problem? Yeah. Not that I want to take the credit away from Colby Covington here, because while Colby Covington appears to be a reprehensible, reprehensible human being outside the cage, like, you know, you got to admit the guy's a pretty good fighter. Uh, he is. He advances to 16 and two overall here, uh, gets the job done, even if this wasn't the most thrilling and action packed fight, gets, you know, gets a, a win here removed from the loss to Kamaru Usman at UFC 245. And yet, like, I look at Colby Covington still technically the second, the number two overall contender in the UFC welterweight division behind Gilbert Burns, who we think is, is going to get the the next title shot here against Usman. I still, I look at Colby Covington and I, and I wonder like, what is the ceiling for this guy or what, what can he really accomplish? And what will the UFC want him to accomplish in terms of being a, a, a title challenger or not being a title challenger? Because we do the thing obviously where uh, we do the split screen interview. Oh, uh, ESPN split screen interview, Kamar Usman on one side of the, of the, of the shot, Colby Covington on the other, as if we are pandering to everyone's worst instincts. And like the thing that I, that I'm wondering as it goes, and as Covington says, like the racist stuff about your tribe and the smoke signals and all this other garbage that he says, why I'm sitting at home, I'm watching this. I'm thinking, why do this? Why put Kamar Usman and Colby Covington in this two shot interview? Colby Covington is not going to fight Kamar Usman next. He's not the number one contender. Gilbert Burns is the number one contender. And I would openly wonder if Kamzat Chimaev goes out and does something terrible. Uh, and continues fighting once every three weeks. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, are we, are we in a position where, uh, you know, uh, Colby Covington gets kind of like lost in the, in the shuffle here. Like, well, cause I don't get the impression that Colby Covington is like super popular. I don't get the impression that a bunch of people want to see him fight. And like, I don't know, man, like, I just don't understand why we would prop this guy up as, as the potential number one contender when he's, he's, he's kind of not at this point, at least not well, with, through one win, in my opinion. One of the things that I thought was interesting and maybe a little bit of uh, telling on himself somewhat, as you would say, was afterwards when Dana White was being asked about, um, you know, do you have a responsibility to to say something about Colby Covington or do something to Colby Covington or something? And Dana White's point was that uh, we we support free speech. His quote, who's more about free speech than we are? We literally let our people do or say whatever, which I think there's some people out there who who have been punished for doing or saying whatever by the UFC who might disagree with that. But still, in that when he was making those comments, he said something about how he kind of knew that this was going to happen, that uh, he, he, he made some parallel to the stuff that happened between Khabib and Conor McGregor. Where he was like, well, that one surprised me because that one took a weird turn and got dark in a way that I wasn't expecting with like, you know, national allegiances and religion and stuff like that. But this one, and he made some reference to the press conference where he basically said something along the lines of, you know, I knew that that's what would have happened if we put them together at the press conference, which You'll recall at the time, the explanation we were given for why they did the pre-fight press conference in a different way was to highlight the undercard. That's what that. And during Friday's power hour, you and I 
we we cast some doubt on that explanation, and then Dana White basically admits that it was based to keep something like this from happening. And then, but then you put them on the post show afterwards. Somebody was asking me in my mailbag this week where they were like, "Hey, I, we understand you know the UFC is not going to do anything about Colby Covington saying stuff like this, uh, but what about ESPN? Like, what does ESPN think about this kind of thing?" And it made me wonder: Would ESPN have had a different feeling about it? if this post-fight show had been on ESPN and not on ESPN plus, hey, is it different if you can tell yourself, okay, they're doing it on a dark corner of the internet, basically. And only the people who are already in that world uh, are watching it. And they're already kind of desensitized to this stuff because they know what the deal is anyway. Cause I, you look at ESPN and stuff as a company, there's a lot of support for black lives matter stuff on ESPN. And ESPN hosts on TV have made really like genuinely moving comments about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then Colby Covington goes out there and says, it's a sham. These are lifelong criminals and they hate America and they're not real Americans like me and you. Wink, wink. Uh, and the smoke signals from your tribe thing, which is just as about as openly racist as you can be. The other one at least gives some people who want to support Colby Covington and, and continue claiming there's nothing wrong with it, at least gives them some kind of cover. Because they're like, what? He's just talking about blue-collar Americans. I don't see the problem. The other one is just straight up in your face racism. And if you don't think it's racism, then you're, you're kidding yourself because it is. And that's not even like a conversation that we're having. But it it is weird to me that this guy is going to keep pushing this envelope, but he keeps taking it further and further and further. Cause probably because he feels like in some way he has to, because that's his brand, right? Like that's his kind of yeah. his gimmick. It's what he's doing. But also so much of his brand is Trump supporting politics. And we live kind of in an age where Donald Trump can show up at a rally of a bunch of people, tell them what good genes they have and talk about how terrible refugees are. Everybody's like, we get it. Yeah, like we know what you're saying and we like it. And so stuff like that has been kind of normalized into the just the regular actual discourse that you can have on TV where it's like a stuff that is pretty clearly racism is just one side of the conversation, like one side of the spectrum, one man's opinion kind of thing. And so the UFC can then go, hey, what can we do? Freedom of speech, man. Th- those are his opinions. Uh, I don't know. Like That stuff to me is like that. It's a microcosm that shows like how how we've drifted in that direction just kind of culturally where you start to get some of these views more and more into the mainstream. A lot of people, a a kind of surprising amount of, and just depressing amount of people go, Hey, we really like that. And we support it. And then the next thing, you know, the guys on ESPN talking about smoke signals from your tribe, like that does seem like, yeah. At the same time though, like I, like I, I'm old enough to remember when it seemed like the UFC was pretty mad at Colby Covington. Remember that? Like pretty recently when they they had a uh, – was it a contract negotiation? They couldn't we'll see. Get yeah, well, that's about money like though. That. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, like Colby Covington's up here. He gets his win uh, in this fight over Tyron Woodley and he's talking about how he wants to fight Kamaru Fake Newsman next or Street Judas Jorge Masvidal. And I'm sitting at home thinking like, man, you probably are going to have to fight Leon Edwards next, my friend. Like – I, if I'm UFC matchmakers, I don't necessarily think that I'm that I value Colby Covington over any of these other welterweight contenders. Like I don't necessarily see him as like, oh, the guy's a star. We that we definitely need to fast forward him into a title shot. Like I'm thinking Colby Covington might have just earned his way into a, a much, you know, a competitive fight against Leon Edwards. Not necessarily that he's going to go for one of these big stars in the in the welterweight division. I guess uh, 
I should also point out Kamzat Chimayev obviously fought Gerald Mearshart at, at middleweight this past weekend, and I don't know whether or not the Damian Maya fight is going to be at 185 or 170. Damian Maya is at 170. Yeah. I would think if they have enough time to do like a, a full camp or whatever, that those guys would, would fight at 170. But like if Chimayev went out and did something super impressive against Damian Maya, I would be a thousand times more interested in having him fight Kamaru Usman than I would having Colby Covington do it again, uh, assuming that Usman obviously beats Gilbert Burns in their fight. So like I, I'm, I'm sitting at home just like struggling to get my arms around what kind of figure in the UFC landscape Colby Covington even is while he's out here like spewing all this terrible stuff and, and talking about how these big fights that he wants. Uh, and if I'm a UFC matchmaker, I'm, I, as I said, thinking something more, more along the lines of Leon Edwards, which was, is a tough fight for anybody that nobody seems to want at this point. Right. I mean, and the, yeah, that does seem to be the fight to, to make next because uh, the only people ahead of Colby Covington in the rankings right now are Gilbert Burns and Kamaru Usman. Right behind him is Leon Edwards. That that just makes sense because whoever would come out of a Colby, to Colby Covington and Leon Edwards fight, whoever wins that, they do really have a clear mandate as a top contender next. Right now, either one of them has kind of a shaky claim, but if they fight each other, then I think that that makes sense. Uh, also, it seems like a fight that, you know, Covington and basically everybody else wants to avoid because Leon Edwards is super tough, but has ruled no name value. And so you, you take a big risk by fighting him, but you don't get a big bump from him. I mean, to me, one of the things that complicates it is you're right. The UFC has seemed annoyed with Colby Covington once when he wants to argue about pay or when he wants to bring a camera to the casino where Dana White's trying to enjoy his free time. You can't uh, film Dana White at the high roller blackjack table. <laughs> Come on. Stuff no, like seriously, that. Turn the camera off. Yeah. Stuff like that uh, has made it seem like the UFC does not fully love Colby Covington. And yet when it's stuff like this where he's making all these comments after the fight that are causing a big uproar, Dana White's in a position where he is a vocal supporter of Donald Trump out there campaigning for Donald Trump, saying we got to elect Donald Trump. Colby Covington is over here getting congratulatory phone calls from Donald Trump. And then when he is talking about stuff like Black Lives Matter movement, those are those are all basically Trump talking points that these people are criminals and they're not real Americans and stuff like that. Like that, that could very well be from a Trump rally speech. It's so lockstep. And so Dana White, what can he say? Can he say, uh, I, I wish you wouldn't do that, but also I support the other guy who does that from the highest office in the land? Like it, it puts him in a situation where you do get the sense that maybe Dana White wouldn't mind too much if a safe fell on Colby Covington's head or, he, or you know, if he won one of those special cruises and then just was lost at sea or something and never heard from again, like that maybe he comes with problems that ultimately aren't worth it. Uh, but at the same time, if you're looking at where you're going to matchmake him, he's going to win a whole lot of those fights that you put him in, and then he, he's sticking around. All right. Uh, well, on that note, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then uh, we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, we haven't mentioned it yet uh, on the undercard from this one, but Chad, did you see your guy Johnny Walker snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat? I sure did. Yeah. Kidney play from the forehead up, Abraham Lincoln from the chin down, Johnny Walker <laughs> out there this weekend. Uh, I saw somebody comment that with that hairstyle and goatee, he looks like one of those pictures that's the same if you turn it uh, upside down or right side up and not totally inaccurate. Uh, I wish I could remember who said that. But uh, he goes out there against Ryan Spahn, gets dropped twice in the, the first round and looking like he's headed for third straight loss here. 
Ryan Spawn does him a favor, though. Follows him to the mat, tries to secure mount there, ends up getting reversed, and in the ensuing scramble decides, I know, this guy who I've been just lighting up on the feet, the thing to do now is to take him down. And gets stuck up against the fence digging for that takedown, while Johnny Walker just throws everything but a paternity suit at the region, at the side, and maybe a little bit the back of the head, and ends up getting the finish. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? That's one where I just, I I look at Johnny Walker and I say, you know what? You aren't necessarily great, but you are good. And maybe sometimes you're lucky. And if that ain't enough, damn it. The guy brings some excitement, Chad. Yeah, he does. Fucking kidding me. You fucking kidding me. Uh, Ben, everyone who listens to this podcast knows that the CME's official position is, is that we are fans of Ryan Hall, that we want to see him come out here and fight again. Uh, but did you see your guy? Yeah, this week I saw it. I was goes hoping. on the oh. uh, goes on the podcast of somebody named Lex Friedman. I have to admit, I have no idea who that is. Uh, but he starts talking about cancel culture and why he doesn't he doesn't support cancel culture because Ryan Hall says it quote doesn't incentivize proper behavior. Now here's where things get get weird. Here's your quote from Ryan Hall. Let's take one of the great monsters from history, Adolf oh, Hitler. No, let's not. Let's not. Obviously, who's done awful, awful things, but also for anyone who's even a minor student of history, did some positive things as well. Oh, he really went with Hitler, did some good things? I don't have to embroider this person's crimes. I don't have to act as if there was nothing good a monster has ever done and nothing bad that a great person throughout history has ever done. But imagine if the ghost of Adolf Hitler were to pop up and go, oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. I know what I've done, but I would like to apologize and start to make it right. You'd hope if he popped over here. <laughs> I mean, this is the ghost, right? This is yeah, the ghost is, that's uh-huh. apologizing and trying to make. Okay, I'm just making sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how much I need to go on here, but here Brian Hall says, You'd hope if he popped over here, we would go, I don't really like what you've done and I don't like you, but at the same time, I'm glad to hear that you're making attempts, an attempt to make this right and to push in a positive direction, even if you can't make it right. Because otherwise, what are we doing? We're decentivizing uh, changes in the behavior. You fucking kidding me? Okay. I mean, I, you see what Ryan Hall is trying to say here, right? Yeah, He's trying it, to say that we should give people the opportunity to make amends and do better in the future. That we have to allow for the possibility of personal growth. Yes. And and that people can learn and and do better and atone for for their past sins. And and I there there's a good point some buried in there somewhere a, that basically if we kernel. just there's if we just tell somebody that because of what they did or said that they are canceled forever and they can there is no possibility for redemption that then we we don't allow for personal growth. I get that. But, but if you ghost- were going to make a short list <laughs> of people whose future personal growth probably could not have undone their evil. Adolf Hitler would be pretty high up on that list. Yeah. You fucking mm-hmm. kidding me? You're going to you're going to cite Adolf Hitler here with for your analogy on how we shouldn't uh just cancel people and give people the opportunity to become better humans. Also, what I feel I like we could have picked somebody I else, know, man. I don't know what powers a ghost has, but I feel like they're kind of limited to certain actions. And I don't know if a ghost is really going to be able to do anything to atone. Like what's, is he going to like haunt bad people or is he going to like speak to schools or I don't know what, what is the ghost going to do? See, I think you've already thought too deeply about it. I think we're just going to say, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on. 
fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I don't know if you will ever see a more disparate reaction between two fighters to the same announcement of a majority draw. Because they're standing there, Donald Cerrone, Nico Price, waiting to hear the judges' scorecards. Now, Nico Price has already been deducted a point early on in this fight for eye pokes. So in a three-round fight, that doesn't exactly help you. But he has looked pretty good in other moments of the fight. Donald Cerrone... He's making that Donald Cerrone post-fight beat-up face that seems to just happen to him as soon as he gets hit in the head at all at this point. And when it is announced that one judge has it for Cerrone and the other two have it as a majority draw, Nico Price acts like he is going to Disneyland. He's pretty excited about that. And Donald Cerrone stands there and merely heaves the sigh of a middle-aged man who is tired and wants to go home. Now, Afterwards, Dana White is talking about what do we do with Donald Cerrone at this point? He's 37. You know, he he came into this fight riding a four-fight losing streak. Doesn't lose this one. Doesn't win it either. Would have lost it, it seems, if not for that point deduction from, from Nico Price. And Dana White's saying we might have to have a talk with Donald Cerrone about maybe hanging it up here. Donald Cerrone said before this fight, somebody asked him about if he was thinking about retirement. And he said, no, I'm not. Don't even ask me that question. I'm not thinking about it. Is Are, are things about to get sad with Donald Cerrone? I mean, things have been sad for a while. Well, right? okay. Like, this is okay. his fifth straight loss. Like, we're, we, we've been, he didn't we've been lose. talking. He did not lose. Okay. Well, not Correct according you on to him, a fact. he did. Well, Donald Cerrone, he goes to the post-fight interview here, or post-fight press conference, and does the the standard Donald Cerrone post-fight press conference where he talks about how it was the worst performance of his career, and like he's got a lot of mental hurdles that he needs to get over. Says that he told Nico Price out there that he would love to fight him again because Donald Cerrone said that he needs to give Nico Price the opportunity to win uh, outright instead of get getting stuck with this draw. So it was like... Uh, both these guys kind of got to do all their stuff in terms of how they responded to the draw. Like, I feel like this was a, this was exactly what we expect from Don Cerrone who, you know, while he has proved himself to be somewhat problematic as an individual, I think you, you gotta respect the way he, he handles, uh, the adversity that he comes over across inside the cage and like yeah. the, the, how, straightforward and honest he's been about the difficulties and psychological aspects of, of trying to fight. And like, he's, he's said all that kind of stuff kind of over and over again, but here he is on the heels of his fifth straight loss or is in his mind anyway, fifth straight loss, even though it was technically a majority draw. Uh, but like at the same time, Donald Cerrone is not going to retire, right? We know this. Uh, we could, I think we can say fairly confidently that Donald Cerrone is a guy who's going to fight as long as, his family will allow it or as long as he can find someone to give him money for it or as long as he can drag himself physically out to the cage to do it. And if you're the UFC and you're done with Donald Cerrone, there are promotions out there that would like to have him. Yep. There are definitely people that are going to give Donald Cerrone a job if he, if he still wants to do that. So I think if you're the UFC, you gotta, you gotta kind of continue to give the guy fights until it gets 
worse than this, at least like this, you know, it's, it's sort of a similar conversation as what we had about Tyron Woodley, I think, because when you're Donald Cerrone and you get into your late thirties, you're, you've still got a lot of positive attributes as a fighter, but the negative attributes, uh, become more, uh, noticeable, I guess, if you lose a, even a little bit of, of speed and, and aggressiveness and, and y- y- technical wherewithal, whatever it might be. But, uh, I think the glory days are probably behind us for Donald Cerrone, but at the same time, like we, I don't know what we're supposed to do about it, but the guy's just going to keep fighting. So yeah, I mean, you say, I guess you want, you might as well have him around rather than let let him fight for somebody else. You say that, uh, you don't see Donald Cerrone retiring. I mean, even if Donald Cerrone comes out here and says that he's retiring, I don't really believe he's retiring. No, especially you'll get in a fight on the way home. I think for him is especially difficult to to go out like this, like to go out on this long losing streak where he can't seem to turn it around, even as he went from fighting, you know, top elite lightweights like Tony Ferguson and, Ga- and Justin Gaethje. You know, you lose to those guys. You get at least a higher profile fight in Conor McGregor. You lose that one. Then you, you take a big step down. Uh, rankings wise anyway by fighting anthony pettis you lose that one and then even further down you nico price and you don't win this one i think that he's telling himself okay i can still do it like i can still go out here and and beat somebody i just but like i can't stop now when it looks like like, because otherwise it's going to leave such a bad taste in your mouth for so long but then if you're the ufc like you say hey the ufc probably has to just keep offering him fights against somebody no matter what because those do nothing UFC jobs in exchange for retirement. Those things seem to be a thing of the past. You know, the, the new ownership doesn't really get down like that quite the same way. If you cut him, you know, Scotty Cox and bare knuckle FC are both probably doing the three stooges move of like trying to get through the door at the same time and, and getting their shoulders wedged together and stuck on their way in there to call Donald Cerrone. Uh, and yet, you know, you you can tell the guy he can't stay here, but you can't tell him he has to go home. But if he stays here, you know, his last disclosed payout, at least, I believe, was that one uh, against Conor McGregor where he made 200 grand to show up. Do you do you want to keep Donald Cerrone around and out of the hands of the competition enough to keep paying him 200 grand to show up? I mean, I guess in some ways we're dealing with a slightly different reality for the UFC right now. They they indeed have been cutting some of these uh veteran stalwarts that get paid, you know, more money than than maybe the UFC wants to pay them at the moment. Like John Dodson, for example, was just let go, I think this past week or maybe two weeks ago, who you gotta think is one of those guys who was just like getting paid a little bit too much. He was like basically in middle management for the UFC as a fighter and 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 got his walking papers. It's hard for me to imagine that happening to Donald Cerrone, but I guess crazier things have happened. Uh, so it, it, maybe the UFC is in just a different financial mode right now. Maybe they would think about cutting him, but but you are essentially giving him over to to someone else. And uh, you know, it's possible Scott Coker could do something with Donald Cerrone, or it's he would be a, a decent sized draw maybe for BKFC. So if I were the UFC, I would probably think about keeping him around. Uh, what about Nico price though here, Ben going out there, essentially doing the anti Dundasso where, uh, every time Nico price poked Donald Cerrone in the eye, Nico price essentially yelled out, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, (laughs) 
he's not he's not even covering it up very well. Like that's that's how you end up losing a point. I think is although the second one upon the replay you saw he basically went uh, he thumbed both eyes essentially uh, the, the second one. So like maybe Jason Herzog is going to take a point every time with that, but uh, not much of a poker face over there on Nico Price, who is maybe just too good of a dude to uh, to try to cover up his his accidental eye pokes. You know what, uh, Nico Price somehow. For a guy who cost himself a victory due to fouls, somehow came out seeming more likable at the end of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, also, the them continuing to repeat that Nico Price has five kids. That's that's too many kids, Nico. Man, I don't. The that guy has five kids and still has the energy to show up here and fight Donald Cerrone for three rounds. I, I don't know, know how. how. I don't yeah. know. Five kids at 30 years old also. Busy. He's been busy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, In any case, that I guess is going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, we're going back. UFC 253 this Saturday night coming our way from the Flash Forum in Abu Dhabi. Fight Island Part 2 as Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa are going to go at it for the middleweight title. Can so I get you to say Part 2 one more time? Part 2. I love it. It's my French accent. I'm yep. nailing it every time. Uh, we got some mail this week from somebody. I can't remember who it was, but they were down there uh, in New Zealand and they were sort of like, you know what? New Zealand has done a great job putting a, a, a lid on the coronavirus pandemic. Why would we not do UFC 253 down here in New Zealand, obviously, try to uh, capitalize on the stardom of Israel Adesanya a little bit here? And for a split second, I was like, you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea. Like, maybe they should do UFC 253 in New Zealand. And then it struck me, oh, wait, it's New Zealand that probably wouldn't want UFC 253 flying a bunch of people in to uh to have their fight show and then go into scatter all over the globe after it was over not only uh, would they probably not want you to bring your fighters from all over the globe to their island where they're doing quite well with this pandemic they probably wouldn't pay you to do it the way the government of abu dhabi was the first time we were in fight island where all the associated expenses uh, with the coronavirus testing and the catering and the hotel rooms and the going down the water slide and coming out the mouth of the Cobra, all that stuff was a, a bill footed by the government of Abu Dhabi in order just to use the UFC as like a tourism boosting thing for them. And so that's why maybe the, the bubble was even a little bit better in Abu Dhabi was because UFC didn't have to pay for the infrastructure for it. In any case, we're kicking off a five week run here at the Flash Forum in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I should say a twin bill of UFC title fights here at UFC 253, Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa, and also Dominic Reyes against Jan Blagovic for the vacant light heavyweight title. Uh, let's talk, I guess, for a couple minutes here just about the 185-pound belt, Ben. Uh, Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa, if nothing else, I feel like is a is going to be a, a very fun fight, or at least has the potential to be a very fun fight, and perhaps... 
a fun fight right at the moment when the budding star of Israel Adesanya kind of needs one uh, coming off the heels of that Yoel Romero fight at UFC 248, which turned out to be almost no fun at all. Yeah, that's that's the only thing that gives me pause here is that I felt like Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero was going to be a kick-ass fight, and then instead it was a staring contest, uh, both the guys trying to play a living statue there. But this one, I don't know. It can't happen again, right? Like, it can't happen two times in a row, can it? Especially I with mean, this. It, it would be kind of funny if Paulo Costa did the Yoel Romero thing and just like <laughs> stomped out to the middle of the cage and just stood there. I mean, what we know about Paulo Costa, his fighting style, what he sees as his likeliest paths to victory, those things suggest that he's probably going to go out there and at least try to get after Israel Adesanya, right? You would think. You would think. Um, also, one interesting thing to note, it uh, seems like uh, media access to Israel Adesanya, very, very limited in the lead up to this. Um, the that maybe he felt like he spread himself too thin was the word like leading up to the Paul, or the Yoel Romero, Yoel Romero fight and is now going the hard opposite direction. Feeling like all right, I'm not gonna spend the whole week doing a whole bunch of media for all you people. Like the I've already done the promo stuff. The fight's gonna sell. I'm gonna focus on being at my best and and performing at my best in the actual fight rather than trying to squeeze in every last possible interview. Which I don't know. I can't say that it's a bad calculation on his part. If that's what he's thinking because I agree. Like there's enough out there already, enough material for everybody to work with that the fight's gonna sell. It's not. You know, you're not going to tell me that you're five, 10 minute phone hits away from really making this into a, a big time pay-per-view. Like if it's going to hit, it's going to hit now. Um, already, like you just, you, you look at this fight on paper. I said before, like the exact wholesome content we needed was two guys who were both experts at violence, seeing each other uh, in the hotel and having a friendly conversation about each other's weight and physiques. And then we're still going to go in there and try to smash each other. But you don't need to sell us on it that it's an absolute blood feud. Like it's, an, it's enough right there. Just stylistically and where they both are in the division, that's enough. Yeah. Let's just have two really good fighters who both want to be champion. Yes. That's, that's good enough for me right now. Uh, you look at the odds on this thing, Israel Adesanya going off as the slight favorite. But it's, uh, it's closer than you might imagine. Israel Adesanya about minus 170, Paulo Costa plus 150 here. So uh, odds makers see the champion as the as the favorite, as I guess you might assume that they would, but definitely given Paulo Costa a chance here. Yeah, I mean, uh, a guy who is big, strong, aggressive, and can come after you and hits like that, I, you got to give him a chance, right? Like especially because you're if you're Israel Adesanya, a lot depends on your ability to dictate the range that this fight takes place at, where on the cage it takes place a whole lot. And Paulo Costa's got to know that. Like he's got to know that you you dance with who brung you. If you're you, you know you're not going to go out there and try to remake yourself as a really slick striker against a guy like Israel Adesanya. You're going to try to be the guy who has to be the aggressor and is going to come after him and look to land some bombs. Yeah. Uh, what is your level of hype for the light heavyweight title fight here, Dominic Reyes against uh, Yanni Blackjacks? Well. Uh, I'll tell you, I recently, I made a choice in my mind, Chad, and that increased my level of hype. You know what it was? I don't know where else you would make a choice, but what was it? Made a choice in my mind to <laughs> think of this one as the opening round of a light heavyweight Grand Prix. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds handy. Yeah. 
what's what are the other fights uh tbd okay <laughs> but uh you know we got all the champion has vacated the title left the division we got a whole bunch of guys who all seem like they're kind of right around there but there's no clear like just because if dominic Reyes goes out there and beats yanni blackjacks a lot of people are still going to be like well you didn't beat the champion i mean you won the fight for the vacant title but you didn't beat the champion you could fix that you could give it an air of legitimacy if you put them all in a light heavyweight grand prix to determine the new champion we know the ufc won't do that because it would be too fun but there's nothing stopping us from just pretending like it is. Let's call it an eight-man field. Yeah, All we need is yeah. three other fights. Sure. As maybe as we, we just saw those other maybe, fights. You should let me maybe know. Maybe Johnny Walker beating Ryan Spawn. Maybe that was the other another opening round bout. There you go. Yeah. Get out the whiteboard. Sure. Let's, let's put Start, us all down put, there. Put a bracket together. Yeah. Didn't was that Ed Herman uh, fight at light heavyweight too? You know what? I don't know. I don't know if that one's going. Maybe in there. A, maybe an alternate. That was an alternate. Okay, fight? that's an alternate. It's an alternate fight. Ed Herman, now the dark horse to win it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say I'm pretty, I think this is going to be a, a, a good and fun fight to watch. Obviously, I think you, you might have to uh, give the slight edge to Dominic Reyes here, just considering what he did against John Jones. I, I can't lie to you, though, the prospect of a title fight, a light heavyweight title fight that does not in some way feature the the eventual return of john jones is not is just not not as compelling i don't think you know like john jones obviously the dominant champ in this division for a long time but it's not as though we haven't seen other people carry the belt we had daniel cormier come in and be light heavyweight champion for a time but we always had the the idea that jones would be back and at this point i guess we really don't know it's just it's very uncertain uh what the future holds for for johnny bones and so uh, a light heavyweight division where maybe uh, Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blachowicz is the best you can do isn't terrible, but it's also not dessert. It's also not the best we can do, right? Yeah, I mean, I th- I do think that you're not going to come out of this, no matter what happens, feeling like, all right, that is the unquestioned best light heavyweight in the world, and everybody's going to look at him automatically as a champion. I mean, I think if Dominic Reyes wins it, which I think is the most likely outcome there, then I think people will go, okay, maybe I thought he deserved to win the decision against Jones, even if it was close, but he goes out here and he beats Jan Blahovich. And so now he gets to wear the belt around and maybe in a couple of more title defenses, maybe over time, if he can kind of cement a real foothold at top, at the top of the division, they'll turn around a little bit on their thinking on it. But I, I don't know if you come out of here immediately feeling like, well, thank God that period of uncertainty at light heavyweight is over. Now it's all settled. Like I, I, I still think that we get reminded every once in a while, as we talked about before, that a title is a made up thing. Like it's, it's kind of like money. Like it, ma- it means what people agree that it means. And in times like this, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. All right, let's do just saying stuff. And then we will, uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, I know that you you uh, you saw Tyson Nam go out there and get a win. I did this this past weekend. I was looking at the some of the quotes from the post fight press conference here. I really I want to read this one from Tyson Nam, who says he wants to fight uh, Joseph Benavidez. He says, uh, "I really want to fight Joseph Benavidez. I'm thinking of fighting in December or January. I do like the idea of getting out of shape and then <laughs> back in shape." Okay. It's good for the mind. It's good for the body. So I guess this week I'm just saying, me too. 
Yeah. Like at least part of that, I'm on board. That's mm-hmm. see, that's where I'm at. I'm in the getting out of shape part right now. I like the idea of getting out of shape. And then the rest of it. And and then and then, you know, the rest the rest of it. Well And then hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I just like the idea of getting out of shape. Okay. I'm just saying. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying. You remember just last week when we were talking about what a reasonable comment it was for Khabib Nurmagomedov to say that he he doesn't find it appropriate when people compare him to Muhammad Ali because of all the other things that Muhammad Ali went through and lived through and stood for, and that maybe if he knew what it had been like to be a black fighter in America at the time, he had been through all that, that then he could experience it and he, he would know what that really meant, but that he's lived a different life and so he, he doesn't know. And it made me think about all the stuff that people said about Muhammad Ali when he died, right? Like we were all full of fond memories about Muhammad Ali and what he meant, not just as a fighter, but as a person with strong convictions who wouldn't go against those convictions, who stood up against the draft uh, in the Vietnam War, was willing to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, all that stuff. Um, And I was thinking after Colby Covington goes off on Tyron Woodley and Black Lives Matter and a bunch of MMA fans join in, uh, trust me, there's a lot of them on Twitter who want to tell me that somehow Black Lives Matter is both a money laundering operation and a communist operation, which I don't don't know how much those two go together. Um, But I want to remind people about stuff that was said about Muhammad Ali at the time when he was actually doing this stuff during the the civil rights movement. TV host David Susskind, Chad, this is from, from him uh, after Muhammad Ali refused induction into the army for the, the draft. I find nothing amusing or interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. He is a convicted felon in the United States. He has been found guilty. He is out on bail. He will inevitably go to prison as well he should. He is a simplistic fool and a pawn. So I guess this week, Chad, I'm just saying... That if you ever wondered, like, hey, what side would I have come down on during the civil rights movement? Like, would I have, you know, been uh, in favor of the, the black Americans who were pushing for equality? And and would I have seen the obvious problems of not letting them eat at the lunch counter? Um, or would I have just been one of the people who, while I might have remembered Ali fondly decades later, uh, hated him at the time? Um, and I guess I'm just saying that think about your reactions to what's going on now, because that'll tell you. That'll tell you how you would have reacted because you're doing it now. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Remember, we got cool stuff happening all week over on the Patreon page. If you want to join us over there, just go to patreon.com slash co-main event. We got the live chat coming up on uh, Wednesday. I guess I'll be high as a kite for that. Yeah. Uh, And then we got the uh, power hour a week from or coming up on Friday. And then, uh, you know, we just do it over and over again. You can jump in at three different tiers of patronage become one of the beloved patrons of the co-main event podcast as for right now we are done we are through we are out so do you like the gummies or do you like the mints better mints yeah they, get the mints. Like, are they are they mints that you chew or are they like uh you suck on them? yeah like just like mint. i mean you could you could crunch it up with your teeth if you want to but see they come in like the five milligrams if you just want to hang out and have a good time or 10 milligrams uh you know if you're gonna go watch an oliver stone movie <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'll trust your judgment. Okay. I'll trust your judgment on that. I don't see how that could go wrong. <laughs>